I'm here with the winner, Derek Lewis. Derek, why'd you take your pants off? My balls are hot. I thought we had to have all the answers right now. And now? I'm kind of liking the fact that I don't. If one of us goes to war, we all go to war. Welcome back to Love and the Fighter. I'm your host, Charles Tegisco. And guys, it's great to be back here with all of you. My goodness, it's felt like a little while. I'm not sure why. I was I did one last week. But uh, I just, last week I had this work summit, so I was up at 5.30 and I wasn't really getting out of work till around 5, which isn't like that late, but I think when you have such an early start and like your client facing at 7 a.m., shit's just happening, you know what I mean? And you're just on. And I think that type of uh, mental awareness really will take a lot out of you. At least it did for me, it felt like. But no, I'm back now. Life is pretty good. Still chugging along at the gym. I mean, we're in the permit process now, right? So that's as much of an update I could give you. It's more or less out of our hands. So at this point, it's just a matter of us hearing back from them that we're ready to rock. And then once that happens, it's it's like a four or five day turnaround. So we've, do, we've done everything we possibly can to make this as seamless as possible once we get those permits. But unfortunately, the county government is doing its thing. And in their defense, this is just what the process is, you know. So from all my proponents of the big government out there, let's uh, let's pump the brakes, okay? Because I could tell you that there's just well, way too many inefficiencies, everything from small local government to the federal government. I think we all know. I mean, I bet you the, it's more corrupt the lower the, the lower the level. Like the PTA boards at your kid's elementary school, that shit's probably rife with corruption. But I digress. We had some good fights this weekend in Moscow. Uh, I'm going to go over just a couple of them. And then this weekend, we're going to Brazil. So we're doing the international thing here at the UFC. And um, I see. so we have a DC event coming up December 7th. And I'd like to tell you, I'm going to be involved in some way, not through the UFC directly, but with many folks who are a part of the UFC, either on the journal side or the networking side or everything in between. So more to come on that. Can't quite let the cat out of the bag yet, uh, just because that's been announced. But it's pretty cool. We got some pretty cool things going on here, and this is a, a, a solid opportunity, just you know, for the own for my own career. So um, a lot to look forward to on that part. But uh, let's get into these fights. So the co-main event was Alexander Volkov versus Greg Hardy. So this was Greg. I, I need to clarify Greg Hardy because I think my bias against him has cost me a little bit here because I pretty much go on and on about how he fights cans. His total his his opponent's total record is like 30 32 or 33 and 8. So he's only fighting guys who are winning. They're either undefeated or have less than 3 losses and at least 5 or 6 wins. So I think the the worst fighter he fought was 7 and 4. And oddly enough, that fighter gave him the, the toughest challenge. That was the fight where he threw the knee illegally, and, and that was that. But he's fought some pretty tough dudes, man. I, I got to give him credit. Like, you know, as he's fighting these guys, you could tell they're not in the same league he is. But so much of MMA is looking and finding guys with good records and then looking at their competition, right? And nowadays, it's not just like, you look at the guy, you know, it used to be, you look at the guy's record, right? And then they were like, well, he's probably fighting cans. So you look at the record of the guys he's fought. Well, nowadays, I will tell you, you have to look at the records of the guys he's fought, if that makes sense. 
So in today's day and age, with how many more fighters there are and, and how much more home cooking there is, so to speak, you have to look at the opponents of the opponent of the fighter that you're scouting, right? So if you want to see how good Greg Hardy's opponents really are, you can't look at their record. You have to look at their opponent's record, right? So now you know that Greg Hardy is fighting this guy, and you know this guy is as good as he is based on the record of his opponents. And that starts to give you an idea of... The, the true talent. So it's really three layers deep, right? It's not the primary source, the primary fighter that you're looking at. It's not the secondary fighter that he's facing. It's the fighters who fought the secondary fighter. And and it's just like matchmaking is a much more complicated thing that I think a lot of people realize. But for what it's worth, the UFC is the best at it. And they haven't matched Hardy up with the guys like Curtis Blades, right, or Walt Harris, who both of those matchups I thought were good for him. Because at the end of the day, you know what, as badly as I want to see Greg Hardy get tuned up, Curtis Blades is a top 10 guy. Walt Harris is a top 15 guy. Greg Hardy's only been doing MMA for three years. So I, I certainly have a bias against him. And by the way, I'm not getting rid of it anytime soon because I don't want him to win. I don't want him to succeed just kind of after everything he's, he's done. There's just something about him I just really don't like, but I don't know the guy, so I gotta give. I, look, I say all of this because I'm I'm putting my internal bias right out there on the table, right? He fought Alexander Volkov, who's arguably a top five heavyweight and more or less a top contender at this point going forward. And he took this fight on short notice. It was originally supposed to be Junior Dos Santos, but he got a bad bad staff infection, so. It, dropped him out. And then Greg Hardy volunteered for this fight after his last fight ended in the... He actually had won it, and then it was overturned into a no contest because of the inhaler situation. And look, I, I really commended Greg Hardy for taking this fight, and spoiler alert, it ended in a decision that he lost. But I think we learned a lot about Greg Hardy in that he's very tough, and he's very durable, and he's a little bit more cerebral than we've given him credit for in the past. And with all that said, he kind of just got beat up for 15 minutes. You know, it, it, wasn't, it wasn't really that competitive. Volkov is just a very good... He, he has a great control of the range, uh, and he's very accurate. He's just a very accurate fighter. So Greg just wasn't really able to get anything going. And I think it was just kind of like a 15-minute, you know, ass-whooping for what it's worth. But he hung in there, and he did his best, and I do respect that for him, right? Like, he took this fight on short notice and fought one of the best heavyweights in the world who has more fights under his belt than all of his opponents combined. So Greg Hardy, all of his opponents prior to this fight, all six of them, have less fights than this one guy. So when you have that, you know, it, it's hard not to not to respect that quite a bit. And Volkov won. And, and there's not a whole lot to add to that other than I think Hardy needs to take some time off and continue to develop. Whereas Volkov, I think you got to put him with Francis Ngannou for a title eliminator. Francis has pretty much accused Volkov of running uh, for quite a few fights now. I don't know if that's true or not, but I do know that that is, seems to be the only fight to make. I, I just I think that's where these guys got to go. But nevertheless, it's a big win for Volkov, who hung in there. They bumped them down to the co-main event, but I think Volkov didn't take too much damage. I think he's ready for that top contender fight with Ngannou, and then the winner of that can fight the winner of DC and Stipe, depending on how all that shakes out. Moving on, Zabit Magomed Sharapov versus Calvin Qatar. Now, I had picked Calvin Qatar. Uh, I've liked what I've seen from Calvin, and I'm not going to lie to you, I haven't really liked what I've seen from Zabit as much as I have in the past. 
Zabit would not make this. This was bumped up to the main event, but he would not make this a main event fight for what it's worth. He just, it's not something he would do. And uh, look, what else is there to say about that, right? You can make your own assumptions. He said he had staph infection, and that's what had caused him to not be able to train hard enough for the three-round fight. But in his whole career so far, we've seen the same thing from Zabit, which is that he's a three-round fighter, and really, he's a two-round fighter. And then he takes the third one off. He's had many fights where he's won 29-28, and those first two rounds were dominant. And then he just kind of cruised and took his foot off the gas for that third round, which I do believe will eventually catch up with him. But in this fight, the first two rounds, he was throwing a lot of volume, and it was just wildly unorthodox, but dangerous and, and accurate. I mean, it, he was really putting on Calvin Qatar. And one thing he was doing was he was throwing a lot of volume and throwing really good hard shots, and then he was getting away, getting out of the way of the counter. But one thing that I saw with Calvin Qatar, which impressed me the most out of any fight I've ever seen, I would say the only other guy who who's, I've seen do it as well as Jeff Neal, Calvin Qatar's defense and blocking was so good. So many of these shots, he was able to roll, slip, or block. I mean, he just took that damage and absorbed it, I think, better than anybody else could have. I I was really impressed with just Qatar's defense in general. And I say all that because even though Zabit, without a doubt, won those first two rounds, from what I saw, I really liked Qatar's defense. Just from a student of the game, I'm thinking to myself, like, wow, to be able to block and move and be that comfortable with that high level of a striker throwing throwing hands at you with those small four-ounce gloves, man, oh, man, like, that is a, a very legitimate skill. It's a very legitimate skill. I, I think Qatar, you know, he really came in strong in the third round, but even, even to Zabit's credit there, like, Zabit really, he ate some shots, but he didn't really ever seem as hurt as he would need to be for the fight to go Qatar's way. And I think that really the fight just needed two more rounds at its core. I just think it needed two more rounds. Zabit is so hard to figure out. He's so elusive. He's so just, he's just a tricky, unorthodox guy who can do anything. I mean, he had this one trip. It was like he threw a kick, then he got on the inside, he tripped Qatar, and then immediately took his back, and and Qatar did a great job of getting back up to his feet. I mean, that was, again, incredible defense. But, you know, there's so many things he does so well that you're just like, wow, this guy is is really is next level. But with this, I'm just going to call it a cardio issue, because in my opinion, that's what it is, or a strength conditioning issue, I'm not sure, but he has this issue that he's got to solve, because he can't keep thinking he's going to win a 15-round fight by winning 10 minutes of that fight, because eventually somebody's going to get in his face, they're going to put him on the ground, and if they don't, you know, drop him or knock him out or submit him, you know, they might get that 10-8, and it might be a draw, or they might go even in that second round, you know, where two judges are going to give them that second round, and then, you know, because the last things he did in those last two minutes, and then he's going to dominate the third. And, and that's how you end up going from a guy on a you know 10-fight win streak to a guy who, who just lost a fight. And I think with Sabit, that's what we really have to see from him moving forward. He said he's game for it. I, he called for the title shot. I don't think he gets it. I think you have to give him somebody. I think actually the fight to go is him versus Yair, Rodi, Yair Rodriguez. They had talked about that in the past, and that's the fight to make. And you got to make it five rounds for both guys. Both guys need to be tested for that 25-minute championship-style fight, that main event fight, prior to going and competing against Max Holloway. You know, and by the way, both of those matchups against uh, you know Zabit or Yair against Max Holloway would be amazing. 
I think that would be awesome. And I think both guys, if they don't get it this next time, they will get it in the next couple of years. But I just don't think that you can give Zabit that title shot after repeatedly showing he's only got 10 minutes of work in him because he just does not have that last five minutes. And, you know, we saw that in this fight. A lot of people are now saying like, man, I wish we would have seen two more rounds. And I agree. What I will say is that I think the pacing would have been much more different. You know, Zabit fought that fight like it was a 15-minute fight. He went hard and aggressive and really pushed to win those first two rounds and then coasted through the third knowing he won that that those first two. I think if you went to a five-round fight, his whole strategy in particular would have changed and the frantic uh, high-volume pace that he put on for those first 10 minutes would have been spread out uh, to a slower pace over, over that presumably... 25 minutes. So, I, you know, I'm not particularly sold that if it was, you know, two more rounds, Qatar would have definitely won. I had him picked to win this fight, and I would have him picked to f- win a five-round fight. But um, nevertheless, it was a great, it was a great fight, and it was really fun to watch. And you just could not help but want two more rounds there to to watch what happens. But for Qatar, I think you had to give him another guy in the top 10. You know, maybe it's Justin Emmett. Maybe you have him fight Yair if Zabit wants to fight a guy like. Maybe not Aldo, but, you know, well, he's not going to fight Frankie Edgar either because they're teammates. Yeah, I mean, look, both Aldo and Edgar went down to 35. It's the 45-pound the division is kind of interesting right now. You have a lot of guys who are right there, but they're now getting clogged up before they get to that top contender spot. So I guess we'll have to see what happens with Volkanovski first. But um, nevertheless, I think Zabit is on that path, but he's got to hole up a few of these things, and that's just his number one priority. He's got to work on his cardio and he's got to be able to maintain that pace that he puts on with that elusiveness and with that difficulty in understanding what he's doing. He's got to put that together in those in those championship rounds. My man Carl Robertson had a huge win this weekend. So he fought uh, Kapilov. I forget the gentleman's first name, but a Russian striker who was undefeated. And um, it was a very good fight. Carl really just controlled the range, was always getting Kapilov to back up. And it was the leg kicks and the footwork that allowed Carl to put himself in position to land those hard shots and, and effectively get out of the way of the counter. In the third, I think it was the third round, Carl got poked in the eye very, very badly. And as he got poked in the eye, it actually it might have been the second round, I'm not sure, but he got poked in the eye and effectively it was bleeding down his eye. It was the top eyelid and it was it was a significant cut. He had to actually get stitches on it. So for those wondering how bad it was, but he... Um, Kapilov like rushed him and was attacking that eye and he kind of dealt with that and then fired back and at that point after he cracked Kapilov a few times um, he just utilized some good wrestling I didn't really know Carl could wrestle like that I've seen him use it in the past but I didn't see him use it the way he did this past weekend which was he got the takedown immediately passed guard took his took this gentleman's back and then was just on him like it was a very much a it looked like he was drilling takedowns to back takes. Like that's how smooth it was. And that was pretty impressive to me. And then when he got, and then he was able to sink in that rear naked choke and get that win. And that was a gutsy performance because he went to this gentleman's hometown in Moscow, Russia. He was fighting his fight, uh, Carl's fight, excuse me. And then he had a very, a bad cut that the fight could have easily been over. And he would have gotten that win, by the way, he was up on the scorecards and so enough time had passed where it would have gone to the scorecards. You know, he, he didn't have to go for the finish. The other fighter had points taken away for the eye poke, and, and he didn't even have to continue with the eye poke, but he went out there, he went for the finish, and he got it, and then he called out Eric Anders, and I think that's a reasonable fight to make for both guys. For Eric, you're going to have your hands full. He's a little bit bigger, but he's a little bit slower. Um, Carl's quick, 
he's got those vicious leg kicks that Eric has shown that he's got uh, some problems dealing with in the past. But either way, you know that's going to be a fight where both guys are going out there and they're they're banging. So um, I'm real excited for Carl. I can't wait to see him in December for the next Cowboy Fight Series. And uh, just a, a big win. And it's always better when you see your boys, you know, doing their thing. And uh, it was we were all pretty fired up. The fights this weekend, though, I really just want to go over the main event, which is Jan Blakowicz versus Ronaldo Jacare Sosa. So the last time we saw Jan was him knocking out Luke Rockhold, and this fight's taking place at 205, and he welcomed Luke Rockhold to the light heavyweight division. Um, Jacare is also going up from 85 to 205, so now we're starting to see these these similarities here, and they're both fighting Jan. And by the way, Jan also fought Tiago, Tiago Santos, who fought against John Jones at light heavyweight for the title. He's also a former 185er. So Jan's got some experience fighting these smaller guys coming up. And I don't really see how this fight goes well for Jacare. I think Jan's got really good takedown defense. We saw that with Rockhold. And I think his his strong and accurate punches and just his overall speed and accuracy is like his combinations. He's just he's got really good kickboxing. He's beaten Jimmy Manoa. He's beaten guys who We've seen in the past he's fought against that like are very, very high-level strikers. I just don't see how Jacare is able to get him to the ground or land the power shots that he has. And I don't even know if his power shots will translate at 205. We know he's got world-class Brazilian jiu-jitsu. We know that Jacare is, is, a, is a arguably a top contender in any division he competes in. But I just think this might be too much, too late for Jacare in his career. And if we look at a case study and we look at Luke Rockhold and Jacare who bo- and, or and Chris Weidman, right? The very best middleweights in the world have all gone up to light heavyweight. And all of them have gone up on a losing streak and all of them have gone up later in their careers. And if you look at Tiago Santos who went up earlier in his career when he hadn't been starched so many times and he wasn't on a deep deep losing streak, that's the type of guy you want to see go up and wait right? Anthony Smith, same thing. Like these are guys who, while they're in their, they're deep into their career, they have experience, they're not shot yet. And when I look at Luke Rockhold and Chris Weidman and Jacare, I'm not saying they're necessarily shot just out of respect, but what I mean is that you, you can't go up against bigger, stronger athletes when you don't have your speed, right? When you no longer have that speed and explosiveness. And we saw that really the most I feel with Rockhold. So if you looked at Weidman when he fought Reyes, it looked like his chin was just not there. And and Weidman used to be able to take a shot, man. He used to be able to take a shot. And for what it's worth, I thought he looked quick. I thought he looked like the athlete. And I thought he was moving really well before he got caught. And he got caught in the first three minutes. But his whole game plan, the way he shot in on a takedown, he was working hard for it. It was just the whole thing looked pretty good. It was just he wasn't really quite able to deal with that range yet. But Rockhold who used to be just a powerful guy who can get out of the way of the hard shots and land much harder shots of his own and just unbelievable top pressure. He was, he came in jacked. So Weidman didn't look like he gained much weight. Rockhold came in jacked. I thought he looked great physically, but he was just slow and his boxing wasn't there and his kicks just could not, they didn't quite have that same pop on them. And as you go up in the divisions, your boxing becomes more important and your kicks become less important. And, okay, of course, there's exceptions to every rule, right? John Jones has great kicks. 
Um, Tiago Santos, obviously, yes, he went up. His kicks were still as vicious as ever. But you don't quite throw the same amount of high kicks, and you don't throw them as quick. And when you do throw these kicks, it's more more often than not, these guys are going to eat them, ride them out, and really come forward to land those hard shots with their hands, right? So it's really about your boxing and your grappling. And Rockhold, his game is just not really suited for that style. And we saw that when he fought, uh, when he fought, Jan Blakowicz, he put a lot of effort in the takedown. He couldn't get it. He got caught. He got dropped. He was getting beat up in the clinch. He was getting outboxed. Jan took away his kicks. You know, all the things that, that Luke Rockhold had used to win fights in middleweight, he was losing. He, it was causing him to lose them at light heavyweight. And I say all that. I give you that case study because then when Tiago Santos went up, he saw nothing but success at 205, including a victory over Jan Blachowicz, right? So he did it when he was still explosive, still quick. He put weight on the right way. And he's just the perfect example of how to do that. When we go now to Jacare, I just don't, I don't really know how he gets it done. I don't think he's quite as susceptible to, to getting knocked out as Rockhold or Weidman are, but I just don't really see how he's going to be able to cut off the ring and land the shots he needs to land to get the fight where he needs to get it, right? He's not really known for his wrestling, though he can take you down, no doubt about it, but he's got to do something a little bit different to make that happen, right? Like, he's got to be able to hit you, get you up against the corner, put you up against the cage, and drag you down. I don't really see him doing a, you know, blast double on Jan Blakowicz, and that's kind of what Luke Rockhold did, and he just could not finish that takedown. Not that Luke is known for his wrestling, but just these are bigger guys, and for you to get that takedown and keep them there, you have to really get them to commit. It's hard to shoot on them when they're already in a defensive position like we saw with Chris Weidman on uh, on Reyes, who is uh, very, very, you know, he was very deep on that takedown. Weidman was in deep, got him, I mean, he ended up getting him against the cage, which is really where most MMA fighters are able to stop the takedown. Uh, most guys not named Khabib, of course, but it just, it's a different game. The 185 to 205 pound jump even though the athletes are the most similar in size, believe it or not, despite the 20-pound weight class difference, these guys, if you look at middleweights and light heavyweights, outside of the smaller ones like Whitaker or Gastelum, these guys look the same. They really do. Yoel Romero looks like a light heavyweight. He's a little shorter, but not much shorter than Cormier. Rockhold was a gigantic middleweight. Bigger than most light heavyweights. Weidman, you could say the same thing. So I don't have to go down the whole list, but you could see the trend here that the, even though these athletes are the most similar in size, the game really shifts from middleweight to light heavyweight. And I think that the athletes are better at middle, middleweight. I think they're more skilled, but I do think that that physicality and just that style really changes when you make that jump to light heavyweight because it's, there's not as many volume guys as light heavyweight and everybody can put anybody down. And that's more so at heavyweight, of course. But at light heavyweight, it's just a different game. And you have to adapt to it. And if you're going to adapt to it, you have to do it earlier rather than later. And I just don't see how Jacare is going to be able to make that move. And just moving up in weight classes in general, guys, I think it's a good idea. But there's certain times it makes sense and certain times it doesn't, right? If you look across the board, the 55 to 170 or 170 to 185 pound jump, those are all pretty much similar styles just differences in speed, cardio, and explosiveness, right? The smaller guys are obviously have 
you know, more the, uh, the the first two, the bigger the guy, usually the the more strength and power he has, and so on and so forth. But the the style is the is the same, right? You're gonna have guys who are incredibly skilled in all areas. They're gonna you're gonna get head kicks thrown at you. You're gonna have a lot of volume. You're gonna have some guys who have power. You're gonna have some guys who are counter shot counter strikers. You're gonna have grapplers and everything like that. Right? It's very much a mixed martial arts fight. But when you look at the 135 to 140 pound five pound jump. You go from guys who are walking around at like five, six, five, five, to guys who might be as tall as five, eleven, six feet, right? You're going to be looking at guys instead of guys cutting down from one fifty to get to one thirty-five. You're looking at guys cutting from one seventy to get to one forty-five, right? So these are the types of issues that you see amongst different weight classes. Like not, it's not just ten pounds depending on where you are, because just the human body is effectively. Uh, designed a certain way where when you're going to be 145 pounds, that weight to come, an extra 10 pounds to come, there's just nowhere that extra 10 pounds could come off to put you at 135. Whereas when you're at 135, like we saw with TJ Dillashaw, he wasn't that big that he couldn't make 125. And of course it didn't work out that well for him, but we've had a lot of guys jump back and forth between 25 and 35, right? It's very rare that you're going to see guys jump from 35 to 45. Frankie Edgar's one of the only ones I could think of who's who've competed at 155 severely undersized, but then he went down to 45 where he was undersized as well. The weight class jumping, it's just one of those things that I believe has to be done the right way over a period of time and when you're not too late in your career. And when you when you make that jump, usually you stick to it. But then again, we saw Cowboy who had success at 155, then he had success at 170, then he had success again at 155. So it it depends on the guy. But I think it really more so depends on the weight class. Certain jumps are just more feasible than others. And I think the 185 to 205 pound jump is just too much. And again, I'm going to clarify, because these guys, I, I know middleweights. I know you have seen middleweights. I've seen them next to light heavy. Like these are all guys who are anywhere from 6 feet to 6'3", six, 6'4". Six, they're they're going to walk around at around the same usually around 220, 230, but just the way the weight comes off of them, the frame that they have, the, the type of weight that they wear, everything that goes into it, as they get closer to the fight time, you really see the difference in size and you see the difference in styles that comes with that size of being a larger, thicker human being. So uh, I'm picking Jan and I just, I gave you guys a, a pretty long diatribe there on just weight class jumping and everything that goes with it. But I'm a, I've always been a big Jacare fan. I just think it's too little, too late for Jacare here at this point in his career. But let's shift gears here. We didn't really talk about dating much last week. Grace, the producer, had sent me an, a video rather from Trevor Noah when he was on Howard Stern. And first off, Howard Stern, I know he doesn't like podcasting, by the way, but damn, man, he has got a voice on him. He has got a set of pipes. He's just, when he talks, it's hard not to listen, you know? But they were they were chatting and pretty much Howard was just like, yo, what's up, man? Do you not date? You're not married? What's your deal? And Trevor Noah was like, yeah, I don't really like the whole fame, you know, people knowing about what I'm doing, who I'm doing, everything that goes with that. I was actually, I appreciated it. And um, they, they, you know, got into the conversation. They got into the topic. And one thing that Trevor Noah said was that you need to be honest with who you are and really what you want. Right. And that sounds like something everybody, you know, they all say like, oh, just be, be true to yourself. No, but what he was saying was when you and, and speaking from a man's point of view, like it's all about sales. Right. It's like, how am I going to sell myself to make you want to buy me effectively? Right. 
And I'll tell you, I've told you many times on this podcast why that's the wrong approach to take. But that's by and large, the economy is the women are of value and the men are trying to, you know, get them, attract them, whatever you want to call it, right? Get them sounds weird. The men are trying to attract them. But he was saying that when you do that, if you're just becoming a yes man and you're saying things, you know, you're doing things that you wouldn't normally do, like you're an introvert, but you're going out and partying or you're an extrovert, but you're staying in and watching TV, eventually you're going to be miserable and it's not going to work out. And I thought there was a lot of truth to that. And I've always, uh, I should not say always, I've really lived that, I would say the last like three or four years because I just decided like, y'all, I'm not doing shit I don't want to do, especially at this point in my life. And as I've gotten older and I've become more established and done things better and better and just learned more in general, you know, maybe it's success, whatever you want to call it, I've stayed even more true to that because I think now I really recognize the importance of that as opposed to just kind of doing what you got to do to get laid. But the other thing that Trevor Noah mentioned was that he's open to marriage, but not to living together. And he, he really talked about that building off of what he had just said in regards to being true to yourself and your partner and everything like that, right? And I found that kind of interesting because I could tell you I've noticed just from having uh, relationships and people stay over and, and when, when somebody stays over for a longer period of time, consecutive days, however you want to call it, you do tend to notice that, I don't know if it's you take them for granted, but the time you spend with them becomes taken for granted, right? You Maybe you go you know, and you, you play more Xbox or you do just what you would want to do if you were in your own space because you've been there for so many days. And you know, it's obviously a maturing of the re- relationship, but I think it also takes away from the romance a little bit too. And I heard what he was saying. Now, I can't imagine getting married and not living with a spouse. I think that's, that's hard for me to understand. And I also think that at this point in my life, I might understand what he, it, what he's saying might resonate with me more because I don't know what it's like to have that type of uh, deep, or I shouldn't even say deep. I really don't even know how to describe it. Just that type of mindset where you can live with somebody and be around them all the time and you know, still maintain your own sense of identity and do the things you want while also managing all the other expectations too. Like I just might not be there yet, right? So for me, it's almost like an all or nothing thing. Like when you're here, you're here. And when you're not, you're not. And if you're here a lot, then eventually it becomes, well, my life needs to continue and I need to continue to do the things that I want to do. So, you know, figure it out, right? It's, It's this like weird spot. And I think that's normal for a 28 year old guy, quite frankly, who's, you know, just trying to get his shit together. I don't know how old Trevor Noah is. He's older than me, but that part definitely confused me. And I think, you know, there, there could be a variety of reasons for that. But I think so much of what he was saying was like pretty much like, hey, look, you know, even before the, the marriage talk, because that might have been his way of deflecting the, the question. But I think what he was really getting at was just that, you know, you can't spend too much time together. You have to still maintain your own sense of identity. You have to be who you are and do the things you want. And, you know, I, I get it. I get what he's saying. I get what he's saying. I, I do think it's a bit of a slippery slope because at what point is it like, all right, you know, what do you, what are you like putting a limit on how much you hang out? You know, there's sometimes you want somebody around you for three, four or five days in a row. And there's other times you don't want to be around anybody for three, four or five days in a row. So, you know, is it, is it that, is that a conversation you have to have and you have to like kind of come to the, come to that arrangement? Like, Hey, like, this is what we're going to do. Like, it's a positive. It's great. This is going to be awesome. But then like, you know, give me my space when I need it. Or is it you just keep everything at arm's length, which in my opinion, if you do that, uh, and I'm speaking from 
experience, if you keep everything at arm's length, eventually it will end. It will fizzle from, fizzle from one side or the other. Maybe it's because somebody wants more that you're not willing to give, or maybe you want more that they're not willing to give, or whatever it is. If you keep that arm's length expectation, it's just hard to have long-term success. You gotta, I assume you have to let people in for that, that real long-term, but I could tell you even just you know, past a year, I think you have to kind of be like a little bit more welcoming <laughs> and a little bit more reasonable in some ways. So I really, I liked what he was saying. Obviously, uh, you guys know who I am at this point, but there was some things that I was a little confused about. You know, I just cannot, like I said, I can't imagine getting married, going on the honeymoon, coming back and be like, all right, well, hey, I'll see you on Tuesday. You know, that just doesn't really jive with me. And I love my space. I have my own apartment. Nobody lives with me. It's just, I get all that, but why get married if you're not ready to give that up? So, you know, it's something I got to take a deeper dive into, but I appreciated his honesty and candidness. And on, like I said, like I've practiced a lot of what he was preaching and I can tell you, I think it's the way to go because, you know, for what it's worth, I don't think I've ever disappointed anybody in my actions. I might've disappointed somebody in what I've told them, but I told them at the start, you know, and at that point, like I've talked about it in the past, but even when I was uh, when I was younger, early twenties, I would like tell people like, "Hey, look, like, I'm never gonna be in a committed relationship with you." And I, if you're cool with that, we can keep hanging out. But right now, this is this is what I'm doing, and you can. Th- this is the position that's available. And if you want to fulfill that position, you are more than welcome to. And if not, no harm, no foul. But I don't want this to, ex- you know, go past that or, or escalate in any way. And I think, by and large. I don't think I've really broken any hearts. <laughs> you know, I think people have definitely been upset and there's definitely been, of course, negative emotions, like any breakup or relationship ending or whatever it might be, a plate breaking, whatever you want to call it. But it was never it was never out of the blue, right? It was, it was always like, well, fuck, I guess I couldn't change him. Or, well, I should have seen this coming. Or, I know you told me this, but it just sucks to hear. And, you know, if you have empathy, which I do, you feel bad, but it definitely takes away the, the 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 real like biting emotions that come with any sort of like breakup or or disagreement romantically right like if you set your expectations out there and you make yourself very known what are you going to do you know it could be frustrating it could suck but it could only suck because you're not linked up on the same page with somebody not because somebody thought a was going to happen and it turned out to be b but speaking of b so for those that don't know one of my biggest crushes was Emma Watson. Uh, now, when I was sick, I used to have to find a lot of ways to occupy my time. And I, I would actually, I was mostly kidding. I used to joke my friends. I would tell them I wasn't. But I was just like super joking about how much of a crush I had on Emma Watson and how I was going to find a way to reach out to her and I was going to take her out a date and sweep her off her feet. And I would just say the most ridiculous things, mostly to my friends, sometimes on my Facebook statuses. But um, I recently, well, first off, I realized she's about to be 30. Which is crazy because, man, I I think it was Harry Potter and the Goblet of Fire. She was 18 in that one. Whatever the, like, the sixth one was, it was 6, 7, and 8 were my favorite Harry Potters because that was just prime Hermione. I mean, goodness gracious. Brown eyes, bushy hair. My, just prime. With that British attitude and she was smart. But just, you know, God, what more could you want, right? Just cast a spell on me. You just do what you got to do. But she's now almost 30. Right. And, you know, she's pretty cool. Like she's done a lot of stuff with her life. She's that that's like outside of fame. She's still acting a little bit, but really she's set for life and she, you know, graduated college, became a yoga instructor, just kind of dug the damn thing. 
But most recently, the reason I'm bringing her up is not because I still have a crush on her. It's not because we're going on a date anytime soon. Though if she listens, well, hit me up via Lover and the Fighter and we'll talk about it. (laughs) No, um, I'm just kidding. Emma Watson recently came out as self-partnered right before her 30th birthday. And I know a lot of you thinking, like, what does that mean? I thought the same thing. I was like, what does self-partnered mean? I always knew she had like dated types, right? And she was really funny, I thought, because she's very much a feminist and she's very much um, what you expect to be from a you know, very liberal, powerful young woman who's you know, just like a feminist and, and killing it and just doing her thing, right? Like she's, she is that arch- archetype. Um, but she always dated alpha males, big, athletic, strong dudes who were in shape and just like square jawed like you know she had a type right she had a type pretty much meatheads you know but i'm sure they were all the the very best of the best for what it's worth so i didn't know what self-partner meant so i looked it up and it's uh she's single that's all it means it literally means she's single she's just enjoying being single and doesn't have expectations for uh, societal pressures of what she believes she has to have And I thought that was interesting because if you're an actress, you know, as you get older into your 30s, like women act like they're the only ones who are asked about like, oh, like, are you dating anybody? Are you seeing anybody? What's next? Like, I'm sure in certain cultures, it's definitely worse. I know the Arab culture is very conservative in that way. But uh, yeah, when you get to your 30s, people just start asking you shit. I get asked all the time. So you think about marriage? Nah, nah, I'm not. I'm 28. Relax. Maybe another 10 years. Like, but it happens to me. I just don't, you know, like there's societal pressure for everybody to settle down and get married and be another cog in the wheel. I'm not doing that shit, but I'm also not stressing over this pressure. I don't have to come out as being self-partnered. Like, what the fuck are we talking about? And Emma, I have, trust me, ton of respect for you, ton of respect, but you're just single. That's all it is. And, and I feel like you, somebody would only post something like that and come out with it and get have magazine articles pick it up because they know that the uh, social justice encore that will follow is going to be validating, right? Like, oh, I know I made the right decision because everybody on Twitter is liking this and sharing this and I'm on all these magazines and it's just empowerment and who am I? Man, I'm just self-partnered. Like, this is great. Everybody is cheering me on and saying good for me and I'm probably kind of bummed that I don't have a date or somebody who I feel is of quality to date right? And that's just the way it goes sometimes. You know, the other thing too, so, you know, when you're younger, you, you, you date a lot. It's, it's normal, right? You date for the wrong reasons. You, ha- you date people for reasons that you wouldn't really think long-term would work, right? You bring, bring them around for the holidays. You think, you know, you love them, but you're going to see where it goes. You're in no rush, but you could see yourself spend the rest of your life together. And then it doesn't work out. And next thing you know, you're 30 and that's okay. It's not the end of the world. You could still do whatever you want. She could still date whoever she wants, right? It's okay. Nobody really cares either. Nobody's going to be questioning why a successful globetrotting woman like her isn't settled down with two kids and a minivan. Like that's just not a realistic expectation from her or most people. So what are we doing? I think like most things, this was just about getting a um, moral pat on the back which is fine. I think everybody's entitled to doing what they have to do to get that pat on the back. But, uh, you know, I, I mean, I don't know. It's the, just the whole idea of coming out as self-partnered. 
Like, you're single. You're doing whatever you want. You're independent. That's enough. That's enough. I doubt anybody's pressuring her. I really do. What the fuck is Amity going to say? Hey, like, uh, what are you doing with your life? You're not married. She's made more money from a movie that lasted about a decade than 95% of the population combined. I think she's good. I think she could do whatever she wants. I think self-partnered, no-partnered, multi-partnered, she could probably get away with it. Maybe it's a message for other young ladies who are doing the thing. I'm not sure, but I think at the end of the day, we just got to relax with this stuff. We really do. You're not self-partnered. You're single, which is great. Have fun. Enjoy yourself. Do your thing. And then if you meet somebody that sweeps you off your feet, great. But you weren't, you know, like you, you if you've, you've dated, you know, that's that's like this weird thing. It's like you, you date your whole life and then you're single and, and then you're single, I guess, when you don't want to be single. So you have to come up with a term for it, you know. I think men, by the way, men are like, yeah, dude, chicks do that. I'm pretty sure the term confirmed bachelor came up in the 70s for dudes who decided not to get married, which... Uh, well, I was going to say it's the gayest thing I've ever heard, but I think that was for a lot of gentlemen who liked other gentlemen. So, you know, I guess that works for them. But by and large, like, this is nothing new. So if I, I have to clarify, for anybody roasting Emma Watson for this, I, I'm, I'm, cer- I'm certainly not roasting her. Don't get it twisted. Men have done this. Men have done much worse. Confirmed Bachelor is the most ridiculous thing I've ever heard. So it's just a, a weird a weird state of affairs. I think it was this whole thing was mostly just for some uh, Twitter high fives and magazine like, wow, you go girls. Yeah, guys don't really get that shit. So, <laughs> so we get that pressure too. We get the what are you doing? What what are you where are you going? What's happening? Italian men too, by the way, especially Italian men. When are you gonna settle down? Settle down makes it seem like uh, like I'm out doing lines of coke off strippers. Uh, relax. Are you are you happy with your life? No. Okay. Well then, let me try to be happy with mine. <laughs> you know what I mean? But, well, before I go too too far and dig myself into any sort of hole, I should probably let you guys know that this podcast is sponsored by District Martial Arts, the premier mixed martial arts gym in Arlington, Virginia. DMA has expert-level instruction in Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, boxing, wrestling, and MMA. Come by soon for your free trial and reference this episode of The Lover and the Fighter for a special discount. I also want to thank my friends of the podcast, Sorello Art, who is cooking that man is cooking up a storm, killing it in life. Could not be more proud of him. Just God damn it. If you want to get one of his, his, uh, his commissions, you're going to have to put some work in through the love and the fighter. We can make it happen for you, but time is running out. And look, I don't know if there's going to be any Black Friday sales. Right now, the Black Friday sale is if you come through us, we'll get you a commission. You know, I'm telling you, the, the man is busy, the man's making moves, and there is a long line of commissions, which, as a friend, is awesome to see. Um, as a podcast referral for painting and stuff, makes me a little concerned that if you guys keep waiting, you won't be able to get what you want. So, great news for Mark Sorello, tougher news for you. If you want it, we'll make it happen. Reach out to us directly, and we'll make sure you get the commissions you're looking for for the holiday season. We also want to thank friend of the podcast, The Grace Effect, Grace Ibrahim, who's got her hand in every single pot, um, pun intended. It's it's super impressive to watch, uh, and she's also going to be a part of this event that I'm going to be potentially speaking at, wink, wink, nudge, nudge, that is going to be connected to UFC Washington, which really should be called UFC DC or UFC Washington, D.C., or UFC Nation's Capital. Anything but UFC Washington, because there's a state, Washington. You know, just don't even get me started. 
the UFC needs a little bit of consulting, I think. But uh, nevertheless, she is, as always, a part of this podcast, among many others, including The Brilliantly Dumb Show, hosted by Robbie Berger. And uh, that's another gentleman who's doing big and awesome things. I feel like this episode kind of flew by. We really, maybe it was because I was talking fast and thinking about Emma Watson. But by and large, guys, it's great to be back. I love sharing all this stuff with you. I'm hoping I'm going to be able to break some really good news about the gym soon. I'm hoping I'm going to be able to break some even better news about uh, about my own career so far. So thank you all for being on this ride for me. We're closely approaching episode 100. It should happen early 2020, and uh, we'll have to do something a little special for that. But in the meantime, I hope everybody has a great week. Everybody gets through the week, enjoys the cold as much as you can, and holds tight because I'll be back on next Wednesday for the next episode of Love in the Fire.